David Kenny of Everything Old is New Again every Sunday night at 10. Please join me then and please support WBAI at our brand new old number, which is 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Hey, it's our old number, but it's new again. Because everything old is new again. I like it. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for a special radio gag, Gays Against Guns, program focusing on RV Milk. That's coming up right about now. Stay tuned. you cannot live on hope alone but without it life is not worth living and you and you and you you've got to give them hope thank you very much radio gag the gaze against guns show good afternoon everybody and welcome to radio gag the weekly gaze against guns show Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Joshua Chaden. And I'm Sarah Germain Lilly. This week, Radio Gag is excited to bring you this two-hour extended program that honors the life and legacy of San Francisco supervisor and civil rights icon Harvey Milk, who was assassinated on November 27, 1978, along with Mayor of San Francisco, George Moscone. Today's program is brought to you in partnership with WBAI in celebration of Harvey Milk Day, which commemorates Harvey's birthday this coming Sunday. Over the next two hours, you'll hear from a number of special guests who sat down with us to discuss their relationships with Harvey and what we can learn from his life's work to break down homophobia. That's right, Sarah. Those guests include Stuart Milk, Harvey's nephew, who founded the Harvey Milk Foundation and is a civil rights advocate in his own right, as well as human rights activist Cleve Jones, who was mentored by Harvey, as well as fellow community activists and advocates who have been inspired by him. You'll also hear Harvey in his own words as we bring you archival audio recordings courtesy of Pacifica Radio. Josh, it's so great to be here with you today. We're back live on the radio, everybody, and we're so excited about this show. We begin, as we always do, with a gaze against gun in memoriam that honors the life of someone who's been lost to gun violence. And this week's in memoriam is dedicated to Harvey Milk. Harvey Bernard Milk, my hero was a visionary, community leader, and a gay rights activist during the 70s. Born on May 22, 1930, in Woodmere, New York, and raised in a small, middle-class Jewish family, he attended the New York State College for Teachers in Albany, enlisted in the U.S. Navy, and served in the Korean War. After four years of service, Harvey was officially questioned about his sexual orientation. He chose to leave the Navy at the rank of Lieutenant Junior Grade and moved to New York City, where he worked as a public school teacher and Wall Street investment banker. Harvey took no shame in enjoying his sexuality 
and he was an avid opera buff. Becoming more involved in politics, advocacy, and activism, in 1972, he moved to San Francisco, where he opened a camera store on Castro Street that became a meeting place in the heart of the city's growing queer community. Because of Harvey's sense of humor and theatricality, he became known as the mayor of Castro Street. After an initial unsuccessful run, in November 1977, Harvey was elected to San Francisco's Board of Supervisors, becoming one of the first openly gay officials in the United States and the very first openly gay elected official in the state of California. His unprecedented win as a proudly gay candidate for public office energized the LGBT community during a time when it was experiencing rampant discrimination, hostility, and violence. As a dedicated San Francisco City County Supervisor, Harvey's political agenda included protecting gay rights, establishing daycare centers for working mothers, renovating military facilities into low-cost housing, reforming tax codes to attract businesses, and even passing a pooper-scooper law for San Francisco. Most notably, though, he was responsible for passing a stringent LGBT rights ordinance in the city of San Francisco. On November 27, 1978, Harvey Milk was gunned down at point-blank range in his office by a disgruntled former city supervisor, Dan White, who had methodically crawled through a window to escape the city hall metal director, detector, assassinated San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, and then taken the time to reload his weapon with hollow-tipped bullets to assassinate Harvey. Because he had received daily death threats, Harvey recorded several versions of his will, quote, to be read in the event of my assassination, unquote. One contained the now famous statement, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. On the day he was killed, his nephew, Stuart Milk, a teenager at the time, came out along with countless others across the nation. Milk served only about 11 months in office, but he became an icon in San Francisco and a martyr in the gay community. Harvey Milk was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama in 2009. As a direct result of the assassinations of Milk and Moscone, in July of 1982, San Francisco became the first large city in America to ban all handguns. Rest in power, Harvey, and thank you. It's so powerful to hear that. It's so powerful. Special thanks to fellow Gays Against Guns member Ken Kidd, who you just heard, for his support submitting today's In Memoriam. We'll hear more from Ken, actually, later about his personal story and how Harvey is his own personal hero. And now we're thrilled to share audio from PRN, the Pacifica Radio Archives. So thanks to Mark Torres and to Linda Perry for access to these files. That's right, Sarah. Our first clip is an interview with Harvey where he speaks in detail about his approach to politics, calling on all people to join him in his fight. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm a supervisor in San Francisco. And I'm Greg Gordon for IMRU. Um, I'm, and I'm gay. <laughs> and so am I. And we're up in San Francisco in, uh, in Harvey's uh, office at Castro Camera. And uh, Harvey has graciously taken a few minutes out of his very busy schedule <laughs> to, uh, to talk to us about politics in San Francisco and how he got elected, the first openly gay person to be elected to public office in California history. 
Uh, I like to also talk about uh, politics in California rather than San Francisco. That's fine. Uh, because I don't think there's a delineation. There's you don't think that there's a difference in, in politics in San Francisco as opposed to, let's say, politics in Los Angeles? It's a matter of degree. There's no moat built around the city of San Francisco that separates us from the rest. Sometimes we wish there were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think what takes place in San Francisco, uh, for whatever reasons, can take place any place. It's just a matter of understanding what it's all about. And, uh, San Francisco, it's very interesting because of the fact that I'm gay, that becomes the big media event that sells the newspapers. But it's very important that uh, we realize that I was elected as a candidate who was gay, rather than a gay candidate. Did not run on a gay issue? Um, we ran on uh, uh, the 11 districts uh, we have uh, in San Francisco. The difference from LA is that uh, we are both county supervisors and city council people, one and the same. Uh, the city is divided into 11 districts. And uh, since we are city and county, it's one powerful, very powerful legislative group. You have to picture if your L.A. City Council and your L.A. Board of Supervisors were one and the same, that's where we are. Uh, and we are an activist group rather than puppets of uh, the strong mayor or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or uh, a strong police chief. <laughs> or a strong police chief. Uh, we are very, very strong in this city. Uh, of the, in the 11 districts that were up for election this past year, uh, there were a total of something like 162 candidates altogether. Uh, of the 162 candidates, uh, all the, there were 11, uh, not even 11, there were about 7 or 8 who were incumbents who ran. Uh, six, I guess. And um, Xing those out, because they have a record of voting on issues. Uh, of all the other 150-some-odd people, I was probably the most issue-oriented person running. Probably had taken more strong, definitive stands, not yes, I'm for that, no, I'm not for that, but why, and, and been in the battles, than all the other candidates uh, running. Probably more issue-oriented than some of the supervisors who ran for re-election. At least I'm more... So. And it's vital to know that it took four years, five years, or whatever it was, to build up that kind of a reputation. Of being yeah, because you had, you had run for office in the past. It had nothing to do with running for office. It was, the reason I ran for office because I was issue-oriented. You know, people say, oh, you ran for office, name recognition. No. Um, in, in my particular district, we've had about five or six major district battles versus citywide problems. In every one, I was involved in them on one side or the other. There wasn't one other candidate. There were 17 people running this district. There wasn't one other candidate that had been involved in every single district problem. I was there. Um, people on the streets would say to me, Harvey, I don't agree with your issue, but I know you're a fighter. I know you're there. I know you will be there when we need you. They couldn't say that about any of the other candidates in this district or hardly in any other district. It sounds like Harvey Milk is uh, trying to uh, send a message out uh, right. to other gay or non-gay people who want to run for public office. Get involved. Build your base. Build your support. You can't just get out there and say, hey, I'm a nice guy and I'm going to vote right on all the issues. I love hearing Harvey's voice. It's, it's inspiring. I love it. Uh, we wanted to set the tone for today's program by sharing that with you all. Yeah. And now we're going to hear from Harvey and other activists who came out in support of Gay Freedom Day in 1978 against discriminatory efforts like the Briggs Initiative. I was living in San Francisco at this time, and it was a wonderful, liberating adventure. The Castro, the hate, the Fillmore... The whole city was alive with the revolutionary life of a loving community. And now, here's Harvey. 
The following program is brought to you by the Pacifica Program Service and Radio Archive. Harvey, do you have a few words for KPFA? Yeah, come on out. <laughs> Join us. Bring a friend. What do you think about the turnout so far? Well, it's never enough, never enough, never enough. That was Harvey Milk, gay supervisor of San Francisco, at the 8th annual Gay Freedom Day Parade. KPFA was there, along with a quarter million people who marched for four hours up San Francisco's Market Street, from the Financial District, through the Tenderloin, to the Civic Center, demanding human rights for lesbians and gay men. The march was festive, but with a militant tone brought on by yet another attack on gay rights, the Briggs Initiative. Marching past the Standard Oil Building here on Market, big high sky rises in the financial district of San Francisco, and the parade has stopped for a moment. You're from Bacabi. We're marching. We're actually marching with them, hon. No, we're individuals marching in this group. This is very close to my heart, because he was a member of the Communist Party in the 50s, so we know what we're dealing with in this kind of situation. And this is more innocuous than anything we confronted in the 50s. So it's so subtle, and it's going to hit everybody. Why are you marching in this contingent? Why am I marching? because I think that we should stop Briggs now. Anita Bryan is not uh, a god from heaven, you know. I'm not gay myself, but I'm understanding more and more about the people. And Mr. Briggs, that uh, there are enough laws on the books. If any teacher commits a uh, immoral activity in a classroom, he is fired anyway. So this Briggs initiative, and Anita Bryan, they want to just make a publicity for themselves. I think it's just unfair. Anybody who supports my right to be gay can be fired just for believing that. People think of it in terms of it's a gay rights issue as opposed to being a free speech issue. And that, I mean, it says when you're around a student or school employee, that means your whole life. Any action that comes to the attention or is likely to come to the attention, I think, is the wording yeah. of a so student or another employee. Like it hasn't gotten across, at least in my experience, that, it's, that it can affect them too yet. It's really a pernicious initiative and should be voted down as much as possible, two to one. Bobby Briggs, Jarvis Gant, unite to dump them in the can. Bobby Briggs, Jarvis Gant, unite to dump them in the can. This program was produced by Philip Mulvery, with special thanks to Stu Wasserman and the Fruit Punch Collective. For Pacifica, Berkeley. I love a marching band, don't you, Sarah? Yeah, that was so <laughs> great. Oh. Thanks again to Mark Torres at Pacifica Radio Archives for sharing the historical audio with us. Uh.
what a great day, the march uh, to, uh, to protest the Briggs Initiative to, uh, and, and a great point that it's a, a free speech issue. Now, you are listening now to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Gun Show, here on Free Speech Radio, commercial-free WBAI. And we're here every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m., bringing you the latest in the gun violence prevention movement. Help us bring you special programming just like this by contributing to WBAI at give2wbai.org or by calling the donation line at 212-209-2950. And for a pledge of $100 or more, we'll share these archives with you in the Harvey Milk Day radio gag podcast. That's 212-209-2950. That's it. And we're so excited to bring you a conversation now that Josh had with our first special guest, none other than Harvey Milk's nephew, Stuart Milk. Stuart travels the world championing a message of hope, much like his uncle. So, Stuart, your uncle believed that the personal act of coming out could have an immense impact on society and help younger people. You made the decision to come out soon after his death. Could you tell us a little bit about your own coming out story? Well, interestingly enough, my my uncle knew that I was gay, although I never came out to him as LGBTQ. And I was out a little bit before my uncle was assassinated, but still hadn't come out to him. Yet he knew that I was gay and told everyone in San Francisco that he had, you know, this gay nephew that he's had this these deep conversations with. My initial conversations with my uncle was around feeling different. Um, mm. And it really began, the conversation began in 1972. He was producing Jesus Christ Superstar, the original production on Broadway. And he took me and my mom to one of the premieres. And, you know, he said afterwards, do you want to go back and meet Jesus Christ? Do you want to meet Mary Madeline? Do you want to meet Judas? And I said, no, I want to meet King Herod. And he said, oh, really? Why? Do you think he's still wearing drag? (laughs) (laughs) And so, and I don't know if you know that in the original version of Jesus Christ Superstar, King Herod was in full drag with like, you know, uh, 10 inch heels and everything. So, um, so yeah, that began our conversation about my seeing the world differently. And he was the only person in my life who really saw that as a positive or who gave me, a, you know, he said, I wouldn't feel bad about feeling differently. Like, you know, I would say that to my parents or to my mom and she would say, don't worry, eventually you'll fit in or you'll, right, the you'll, you'll grow out of it. Yeah. And, and my <laughs> uncle was like, no, 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 you never want to lose that. And I remember saying, well, it's a pretty lonely place. And he said, well, there's something powerful that will come from that too and he gave me actually a book called seven arrows which is a native american teaching about people being different and he wrote in the cover of it to me he said you and all your differences is the medicine that will heal the world even when the world doesn't recognize that and so that was like a real touchstone for me and a compass that i to this day hold on to It was a really powerful message. And that's what he pretty much talked to me about. So my coming out publicly was, so I was out, I was my first year at college. Um, I was at American University 
was my first semester and I had been going to gay bars and feeling at the time that's about as out as most people were, if they were even that. Most people were still not even doing that. And when I did come out and became visible, I got to see, you know, I felt like I had to do that to honor my uncle, who was also, you know, this amazing martyred now figure in in my broader community, my broader family, my LGBTQ family. But I lost half of my friends when I came out. I mean, I don't think I knew of a single soul on the campus who was openly LGBT. And I was called into the president's office at the school. And uh, Joseph Sisko, who is the provost at American University, not the president, he called me into his office and I thought he was going to call me in to give his condolences on the loss of my uncle. And he said, I heard you've come out. And I said, you have come out as the words he used was homosexual. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I, I need to help you choose a new major. And I said, what? Because I was in the School of International Service to study to be in the Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, you cannot legally serve in the State Department. So there's no reason for you to be in the School of International Service. Let's choose a new major for you. That was my reality of coming out. It was one that I think most LGBT people go through, which was really refreshing. And, you know, it's kind of like when you can take off a mask and you can breathe, and you are who you are. But at the same time, the repercussions were pretty severe. It was, you know, still a brutally homophobic environment. Although, clearly, my uncle's prophetic vision, and it was a vision, it wasn't spiritual. He didn't believe that, you know, that he was ordained to be killed. But he knew that the reality was that it would most likely happen. And he wanted that, if that did happen, he wanted that to have a sustaining and life-affirming message that would go out, not just for the LGBT community, but for anyone who society didn't accept who they authentically were. And so his message like the bullets that smashed through my brain, smashed through every closet door. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't just an LGBT message. It was a message to give hope to the hopeless. Personally, I love what he referred to as the others. Anyone who was felt like they were left out of the conversation. You raised the idea of martyrdom when you talked about your uncle. Tell me a little bit about how his life's work and legacy informed your professional life. I know you mentioned that when you came out, you were steered away from the profession that you were most interested in. How might your uncle's work have guided you a bit? It's interesting. Most of the work that I end up doing is international and global. So even though at that back in 1978, and into the 80s, I couldn't serve in the State Department or the Foreign Service. I still end up doing global work. I started working in the women's rights movement because I had an experience in the LGBT movement. But Frank Kameny found out that I was Harvey's nephew and that I was in D.C. And I hope and for your listeners, Frank Kameny is one of the founding fathers of the Mattache Society, one of our first LGBT organizations and a historic figure himself. No, thank, but, uh, thanks for giving our listeners a quick little history lesson on Frank. Frank um, asked me to speak at a event and introduced me as Harvey's nephew. And I wasn't very good, and he let me know that. Um, and so 
you know, he said, oh boy, you're nothing like, like your uncle. Don't, I wouldn't be speaking in public. So, um, <laughs> and I was, you know, 18 and a very non-confident 18 year old. So that really, you know, went through my mind. Oh my God, I'm always going to be compared to Harvey. And so, um, so I, I started working when I finished college with the women's rights movement. And in 1985, I got to go to a, to the closing conference for the UN Decade for Women in Nairobi, Kenya. And that's an, another moment that had a profound impact on my life and my view of the world. So when I traveled, my first time traveling across the Atlantic, and I'm in Kenya, and most of the people had my color skin, even though this was in Africa, and it was the closing conference for the Decade of Women, and half the people were men. and. Um, this black Aboriginal leader from, from Australia was opening the conference, Lilla Watson, and she got up. She began her speech saying, look, if you've come here because you want to help women or you want to help indigenous people or you want to help black people or you want to help someone of a different culture, if you've come here because you want to help me, pack up your bags, go home. We have nothing to do together. And you could hear a dead silence in that room. You could hear a pin drop. It went from this buzz to, and she repeated it. She said, let me be clear. If your purpose is to help women, your purpose is to help people of color, your purpose is to help indigenous people, pack up your bags, go home. And she let that silence hang. And then she went on for the next hour to describe why you need to do things because it's in your self-interest not for altruistic reasons, because it's powerful in your self-interest that when anyone is marginalized, diminished, has their rights taken away because of who they authentically are, then we all are hurt by that. We lose the potential that those people could have brought to their family, to their city, to their state, to the world. We lose all that potential. We lose all of their gifts that they can give to the world. And so she said, if you're going to work if you've come here, please work with me. Don't help me. And I think that's a really important message. And it's one that gave me a worldview and stopped me from ever saying that we help anyone. We at the Milk Foundation and I personally, we work globally and with all communities to help ourselves. It's so great to hear Stuart recount what he learned from his uncle, but also how he started his own journey. I love that. Don't help me work with me. Mm -hmm. So now you also spent time talking about Harvey's political worldview and approach to politics. I did, and I can't wait for our listeners to gain further insight into what Stuart uh, thinks we can learn from Harvey still today right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. We continue with uh, our conversation about his experience at that UN Decade of Women event. Her sentiment kind of reminds me of what your uncle's approach was in that you want to bring these folks together, not because they're going to be altruistic in what they're doing to help the first openly gay candidate, but that it's in their self-interest to have somebody like himself in office. Yeah, absolutely. He, he believed, you know, and, and he, 
didn't just believe in bringing people together and realize that, you know, helping the elderly is helping the LGBT community or helping African-Americans is helping the LGBT community or helping Latinos is helping the American community. But he, you know, he also would go and speak to audiences that would be initially extremely hostile to him. I mean, he mm-hmm. wanted to go before people who, he, who did not accept him, who did not accept his values, and who did not accept this inclusivity. And he believed number of two primary reasons. One is visibility. You know, he used to say, right. which is true, that, you know, they can't hate you if they actually know you. They can only hate you if the lies and myths and innuendos, his exact words, the lies, myths, and innuendos about people can be sustained. If you can tear them down, then you start to make progress. And the other thing, you know, is that, you know, he believed that the way we change hearts and minds is not by not having dialogue with people. It is by actually having dialogue with people. And so, you know, we try to follow that at the Milk Foundation, too. There's nobody who reaches out to us that wants to have a conversation with us that we would say, you're not worthy of having a conversation with because you are hateful, because you have, you know, we will have a, now we won't allow ourselves to be used as Mm -hmm. propaganda and having those conversations. But we do believe in having those conversations and it can be difficult. In 1974, it was his first campaign. Um, I was 14 then. I remember getting a letter from my uncle, which I have to this day that said, you know, I went, spoke to a thousand people at a church, a thousand people hated me and I left and 998 people hated me. And that's it. That was the whole note. I remember calling him and I said, what's the point? And he said, well, I'm so happy. I wanted you to hear the good news. And I said, well, 998 people still hated you. Where's the good news? And he said, but two didn't. And the two will become four and the four will become eight and the eight will become 16. He said, that's how we change things. I think there are a lot of lessons that we could learn in politics today because we are living through one of the most contentious periods in American history across the country and across a political divide. So many people have become disillusioned about the future, about whether or not we're on the right track. What can we learn about Harvey's approach in those campaigns today? Well, I mean, I think the first thing, which I think is really relevant um, today, that, and, I, and it goes, feeds right off of that last um, experience that Harvey had that he shared with me, is that we don't have a lot of dialogue now between people and opinions. We do have a lot of demagoguery that gets out there and gets sustained and gets nourished because the only people having dialogue are people who are like-minded to that thought process. I think we can learn that, number one, we need to have dialogue voices that reach out to people. I mean, you know, we have LGBTQ members who support extreme right Republican candidates who at the Mm -hmm. core are against everything that is fundamental to our community's rights and to adjacent communities, intersecting communities that have that is, is just as important as LGBT, as core LGBT rights. It's important that we reach those people. When I saw during the campaign a Trump sign in gay neighborhoods, you know, I, want, I went and reached out to those people. I couldn't do it by knocking on the door 
um, during the campaign, I would call them and want to have a dialogue. And I would do it in the sense that I think my uncle would have, which is not immediately putting them on guard and saying, how dare you (laughs) Um, support someone who wants to take away our rights. I did it with, I want to understand where you're coming from. And my uncle actually taught this lesson um, to me when I had a conversation with my uncle at my grandfather's funeral, um, his dad. And um, I, I remember saying to my uncle, Harvey, do you have to talk about being gay constantly? I mean, you have to realize I was in, <laughs> I was in high school and the New York Times would say, avowed homosexual runs again in, in California. Yeah, and milk yeah. is not a common name. I said, Harvey, do you have to talk about it all the time? And he said to me, and I wish you can visually see this, but he kind of waved his hands in front of them and opened them up and put them aside, saying, uh-huh. I agree with you. And then he went on for the next two hours explaining to me why it was important that he constantly talks about being gay, <laughs> but that I agree with you, that initial let's talk about it was off-putting. It was, it, it was allowed me to take down my own, the, the, the guardrails and the, you know, the intensity and quiet it down. And I think we could learn something from that. Now he didn't agree with me fundamentally and explained in detail why it was important for him to at every opportunity talk about his being gay. But it was really, it was really done very masterfully by allowing me to be open to whatever he was saying. And I think we can learn something from that. I think it's important that we continue, we have dialogue. I mean, in this country, we have such a division. You know, a lot of people, myself included, think of your uncle as being a firebrand, but it sounds more to me like he was actually a diplomat, which is interesting because he wanted to go into the foreign service. Do you think that was the seed that was planted? I don't know if that was, if, if that was the seed, but it was really impressive to see him work, even a family room. He, he knew how to work a crowd and people and let them feel validated, let them change their mind without it feeling like they have they were wrong or that some of their fundamental core values had changed it was really you know i'm here to recruit you was you know i'm not going to allow someone to look at us as child molesters recruiting people Mm -hmm. but i'm going to say we're recruiting people to be who they are to be authentic to not have to spend their life hiding in in those days what was called the closet right and the notion of recruiting someone would imply that you would be uh, fighting on the same team. Your uncle was murdered in his place of work uh, by a disgruntled coworker. And what we're seeing now across the country is a rash of legislation that's allowing people to carry guns without a permit. So as someone who was the victim of gun violence and the fact that my uncle was was killed by a handgun and you know and and it was a handgun you know the 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 truth of the matter is that the person who killed my uncle didn't walk through a metal detector even though there were metal detectors Mm -hmm. they actually got into city hall through a a window in the basement you know and during that person's defense trial said you know well it was common which it wasn't. The fact that two people could be killed um, with uh, five, six minutes apart 
brutally killed by a handgun with, you know, he came, and by the way, he came into City Hall with extra rounds. He was, as a former policeman, as a former firefighter, he was just used to carrying a weapon. And I think that that experience has helped some people who were slow to the table on trying to, trying to bring some common sense and practicality to gun ownership. People like Diane Feinstein, who herself at the time had a carrying a concealed weapon um, and since, and has not since, but I, you know, it's, it changes some of those hearts and minds in telling that story, but I don't understand um, uh, how we have not been successful in showing that we lead the world in gun violence, that we have, um, you know, just glaring statistics on gun ownership, both legal and illegal. The more gun ownership there is, the higher rate there is of violence through guns. And, you know, it's a, it's these mass shootings that we have, for instance, I would say it's one of the most common questions that I get asked when I'm traveling abroad, not because it's in the back of people's minds, but because usually when I'm somewhere, there's a mass shooting in the U.S. at the time. And I think that when you look at the victims of gun violence being turned into kind of monsters, it's even more frightening. So when you see, you know, like Emma Gonzalez or David Hogg, which, Mm -hmm. you know, which we've had at our foundation galas, I mean, these people have been attacked as if, you know, they're they're asking for the Constitution to be overturned um, when they're simply saying, you know, look, I'm a victim of gun violence and we have to do something. We need, we need you know, and, and nobody seems to be there from the other side defending the victims who are speaking out. I'm troubled by that there's not people who believe in gun ownership who are not even willing to say, you know, let's stop attacking the victims of gun ownership and have a conversation about this. I mean, the, the victims of, of gun violence. It's an important issue when you look at our community, for instance, as a standalone, the LGBT community, gun mm-hmm. violence affects us as it affects any other community. And certainly, if you look at our trans brothers and sisters and non-binary family members, they are often victims of gun violence. And then when you go into the hemisphere, so when I say the U.S. stands out, we've kind of spread it to the south of us. And so we see gun violence. Uh, our community has felt gun violence, whether it was meant to be against the LGBT community or just gun violence in general. So, you know, we had the Pulse nightclub shooting and, and it was a global awakening a little bit that this could still happen today and in a place like the United States. But was a little bit sad about the Orlando event is that it was preceded by a shooting at Grandma's nightclub in Mexico, in Zabata, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, 23 LGBT members were shot to death. And there was no news about that. There was no global outrage. I mean, we were reporting it. We were trying to tell people about it. But, um, and I'm, I'm taking nothing away from the beautiful response that our community had globally to this tragedy in Orlando, but we need to talk about it when it happens anywhere and when it happens to any community. Because it happened in Mexico and not the U.S. doesn't make it less of a tragedy.
And I'm so glad you brought up Pulse because that was actually the impetus for Gays Against Guns being founded. That's where I I love to leave the conversation with you, actually, Stuart, is, you know, your uncle turning those words that were used against the community uh, for the community when he famously said, my name is Harvey Milk and I'm here to recruit you. What can we do or what are maybe one or two ways in which we can recruit people in the effort to end gun violence in America? These stories of these of the victims are ones that you can talk about and share and get a better understanding at. We sometimes are at the risk of it becoming so routine and the numbers being just numbers. I love the fact that your organization is remembering each person. Tell their story. You know, make sure people know who these people are. I think the people who have been killed as opposed to just numbers. And so I love the fact that you're doing that is you're, you know, remembering each one. And I think people have to remember that these numbers are not just numbers. They're human beings that we have lost all of their potential contribution um, to society. And it's a loss that people get outraged when they hear that cancer has won its battle against someone who was fighting it. But we have a cancer with gun violence in this country, and we should be as outraged at that as we are when someone loses their life to a disease. Stuart, thank you so much for the work that you do for the broader community, and thanks so much for taking the time today to talk to us about your uncle's uh, life and legacy and what we can learn from it today. My pleasure. Thanks again to Stuart for your time and sharing those stories with us. We continue to honor your uncle's legacy today and every day in our fight to end gun violence. That was so great. Wow. Now we're going to hear from other individuals who've been influenced and inspired by Harvey's message of hope and his vision for breaking down homophobia. Our first guest is Andy Hum, who sat down with our friend and fellow gag member, Shep Wannan. Hello, I'm Chef Wannan from Gays Against Guns, and I'm speaking with my old friend, my dear friend, Andy Hum, gay activist, AIDS activist, journalist, and the co-host of the weekly Gay USA TV show. Back in those days, Andy, we were both two young gay guys in our 20s. And even at the age of 25, you were already an activist. I would like you to reflect back on that day, November 27th, 1978, on the impact the death of uh, Harvey Milk had on you, and the local gay community in New York City. Well, you know, Harvey Milk was a was a breakthrough. He wasn't the first out gay official in the country, but San Francisco was a more sort of a more important city, and he really became famous because he co-chaired the fight against Proposition Six in California, which was a referendum on whether to ban gay teachers in California and anybody who supported gay teachers. So that's kind of how we knew him, and. Right after that victory, this assassination takes place. You know, we didn't uh, we didn't follow it that closely, but of course, everybody knows what what it was about. A disgruntled former supervisor, Dan White, wanted his job back, so he climbed in a side window at City Hall and 
went up and shot Mayor Moscone, who wouldn't give him his job back. And then when it went down and shot Harvey Milk, who was one of his rivals, it was it was horrendous. So we, as always, whenever there was a crisis in the community, we would go to outside the Stonewall. I don't even think the bar was there at that time because uh, it had, you know it had closed after the after the riots and didn't reopen until some time after that. But in Sheridan Square, we met there. And we rallied and we marched and, it, you know, uh, it, it was it was one of those things that really felt like it set the community back. One of our great heroes had died. And then, of course, many months later, when Dan White went on trial, uh, you know, he was he was given a very light sentence. He was convicted of like he was given like a five year sentence. The jury felt sorry for him. And that caused riots in San Francisco and a very, very vociferous demonstration in New York City, where we ended up rallying at the Washington Square United Methodist Church, which isn't there anymore. Yes. And um, could you uh, tell me more about that um, rally at the Methodist Church? Um, You said something very uh, profound to me. And what did you say well, about that, right? But we were all very angry. And I just remember part of what I said at the rally was if Dan White had been Dan Black or Dan Asian or Dan uh, uh, Latino, uh, he'd, he'd be, you know, rotting in jail for the rest of his life. But because he killed this white boy, you know, uh, fireman in, in uh, San Francisco, the, the jury felt sorry for him. The jury was weeping, listening to his story. This is a guy who had murdered the mayor and another supervisor. Could you speak about the response in New York to the White Knights, uh, the White Knights event that happened in San Francisco? Well, that's what that's what that rally was. It wasn't a response to White Knights, but it was a response to the verdict in the case. Now, in San Francisco, as I said, they were so shocked by the light sentence that, you know, they burned police cars, uh, they they rioted, they smashed windows at City Hall, uh, and the police retaliated after that. You know, we were a fairly young movement then, and they didn't like the gays fighting back. So the police started in San Francisco raiding gay bars and just beating the hell out of the patrons. Uh, slightly, slightly off that subject, uh, later on, you and uh, our mutual friend Ann Northrup worked at the Harvey Milk School uh, here yes. in New York. Can you speak about that? Well, we, worked the with Harvey. Yeah, we worked at the Hetrick Martin Institute for Lesbian and Gay Youth, which was a, a social service agency for gay kids, which was the home of the Harvey Milk School, which, which was started just before we came there. It was founded, I believe, in 1985. Because the Board of Education in New York has a has a program where any social service agency that has 20 or more kids who aren't going to school, you can have a teacher come to the premises and teach them. So we had Freddie, Freddie Goldhaber became the teacher there. Ann and I would do things like AIDS education classes with them and other things. But uh, most of the time Ann and I spent was going into the schools and talking about gay issues and AIDS issues with kids and with their teachers. Thank you, Randy. Anything more to wrap up about the uh, overall impact of um, Harvey's murder on the, the gay community and the direction it went? Well, he, he sort of became, you know, he sort of became the first gay martyr. He wasn't. There, there, there were others, of course, 
There are plenty of people who uh, who were killed because they were gay over the years. But he was the he was the most famous. He was one of our leaders. He was one of our national leaders, and uh, so you know, uh, the, it it resonated with the world. We even were able to get him on a stamp. Well, a thank US you, Andy. Stamp. And also, he was a New Yorker. So thank you very much, Andy. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Chef. Okay, bye. Thank you, Shep Wannan, for bringing us that wonderful conversation with Andy Hum. We are trying to get our friend and fellow gag member, Ty Kersley, on the line. <laughs> Ty has a special project he's been working on in celebration of Harvey Milk Day. And it is a premium podcast that includes archival interviews, speeches Harvey gave, and news reports about his life. It will be available for folks who make a contribution to WBAI 99.5 FM at the $100 level. So we're going to share how to get a copy after the next segment. And we're just going to check briefly to see if uh, Ty is Hi, here. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Ah, you're on the line. Yay. Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, and Ty, we're back live again. So uh, can you I tell know, us know, about this? Yeah. Tell us about this next interview with um, you tell us who's who we're going to hear from. Well, Ken Kidd, who, um, if anyone knows anything about Harvey Milk, Ken Kidd will love to tell you as much as he can about him and that it was his inspiration to come out. But I'd like to go full circle to say that Ken Kidd left West Virginia, moved to New York, came out, was on TV when I was a teenager, uh, and was an activist. And that, that the energy he put out in New York uh, was then televised and, and talked about and reached me at a young age and, and kind of gave me hope that there was always a place to go and that there was always people uh, looking out for me if I did come out. So I wanted to say that before we introduced um, his interview just to let you know how powerful coming out can be. Great. So let's go to the interview. Thank you. So one of the things we're talking about with our guests is how Harvey has transcended fame, essentially, to become an icon. Tell me a little bit about how his legacy has inspired or informed your own life or how you live your life. First of all, I, I'm really glad that we're leading off with this question because I think that, you know, to me, Harvey is a hero. And to me, Harvey is inspirational. But to 18, 19-year-old Ken Kidd, Harvey was aspirational. And it's really, really, really important to, to kind of remember and put into context what 1977, 1978 looked like as an 18, you know, from the lens of an 18-year-old, you know, gay guy, you know, growing up on the Virginia, West Virginia border. At that time, what was happening in my life was my first boyfriend, who was married, my, my big brother in my fraternity, and I were causing a real scandal at my college. We lost, our fraternity lost its charter because the national uh, org got wind of the fact that we were gay. So we lost the charter and I actually had to drop out of school because we got, it was a big scandal. So I moved to Charleston, West Virginia in 1978. I'm living in Charleston, West Virginia with this boyfriend. He's broken up with his wife. And I start hearing about Harvey Milk. 
And, you know, we st- we're still keeping it on the down low. We've just been scandalized. We're keeping it on the down low. I am certainly not out at work, but here's a guy in California who's telling me that I can be. Here's a guy who's telling me that in my first job, I can rewrite the rules. I also, at college, had been told by my advisor in political science, he knew that I wanted to be a senator. I wanted to go into politics. It was what I wanted to do. And he said to me, you can either be gay or you can be a politician. Mm. But you can't be both, Ken Kidd. And I was just shocked. And he said, I said, well, I I said, what do you mean? I I said, somebody's got to be the first. He goes, it's not going to be you. You're not strong enough. And I remember that shocked me. And like that absolutely contributed to why I really did keep flying out of the closet harder and harder and why I, I just made a choice like, it wasn't a choice. There was no choice. I had to be true to myself. And the consequences were real. The fraternity lost its charter. The, you know, I, there was, we were scandalized. My boyfriend's marriage broke up. You know, my grades plummeted. I began drinking and doing a lot more drugs, frankly. You know, and, and then we found ourselves living in Charleston, West Virginia. And right about that time, Harvey Milk is saying, your narrative can be changed. Right, right. about that time, I'm looking at this guy who, who has the bully puppet. Here's a man who is a shop owner, a business person. Here's a man who has legitimized himself. Here's a man who they're, they're talking about on national TV, right? We had three networks then. You know, there wasn't even a cable news network. It was like, if for this guy to get airtime, he's doing something right, right? So here's a guy they're sticking the microphone in front of who's got a home. He's got a business. He's, got, he's respected. He's valued. People are asking in his opinion. That was as important to me as the fact that he was an elected politician. Here was somebody who was making ends meet. And I knew, and I really thought that if I came out to my boss, I knew, I didn't think, I knew that if I came out to my boss, I wouldn't be able to make ends meet. But there's a glimmer of hope coming from California from this guy who's doing it, who's got people that respect him. You know, he put it out there and that was inspirational to me. But the career that he had, was aspirational. The life he had, he could pay his bills. That's much more important than people ever really talk about. So suddenly these possibilities are opening up and Harvey was just emblematic of that. And he was telling other people through his, through this life, he was educating other people that that could, that was possible for them too. And by other people, I mean, 18 year old Ken Kitt. I'd love to hear more about your coming out story in the workplace or your professional life. So I'm in working in the state tax department in Charleston, West Virginia. And in 1978, in November of 1978, Harvey was assassinated. And I remember hearing, and, you know, in that time, the technology of the day was we had an FM radio in the, the auditor's room that we would listen to. And, you know, they announced over the radio that, you know, there had been this assassination and, you know, it was probably one o'clock in the afternoon. I remember it was lunchtime because, you know, the time difference. I was dumb. I was dumbfounded. I was devastated. You know, it was like, it was the, my, my world was rocked. I mean, it was like, it was like somebody kicked me in the chest because here was a hero who had to be my secret hero. Right. Cause I couldn't really, we talked about it at home, but, and, and, you know, I had some friends and we knew who Harvey Milk was, but nobody else really knew who Harvey Milk was. And this, this was talked and it was, and, and even the way that they pitched it, you know, it was a local Charleston station is pitching this thing about this straight, this guy didn't know Harvey Milk from my ham sandwich. Right. But I did. And I remember being devastated. You know, I came back in and there was one work friend that I had there who was straight. And I remember he looked at me and he goes, are you all right? He goes, you don't see me. I was like, I'm not all right. 
this Harvey Milk thing is a big deal to me. Harvey Milk was a hero of mine. He goes, really? He goes, I don't, I, he goes, I don't know. That, I don't, I said, I do. Because, and I was like, this guy's name was Larry. I remember saying like, Larry, I'm gay. I told, I came out to a coworker on the day that Harvey was assassinated because of Harvey. Because of his legacy, because I remember, and I, you know, that was fresh in my mind, him talking about coming out, and I had wanted to come out so desperately, and the reaction wasn't great. You know, our our work relationship was not exactly the same after that. He looked at me askance because I think he always wondered whether I, you know, we were good friends because I, you know, because you know the homosexual panic, as they say. Right. But that's my experience of that day was, you know, my, my, there was a definite immediate change in that I had suddenly, I was out in the office. I risked gossip. I risked being you know, fired. Getting another, I risked yeah. getting fired. Right. So, you know, that, you know, one of the things that I was really spearheading in gag at one point was the whole concealed carry reciprocity being against the whole concealed carry reciprocity bills that were in the house and in the senate because i feel so strongly about how what a a disaster waiting to happen that would be and if they'll said was that if you live in new york but new york for example but new york gun laws are strict you can go to some place like alabama that has very very lax gun laws and no registration and your gun, if bought in that state, will be governed by the laws of that state for as long as you own that gun if you bring it back to uh, the city, the state that you live in. That's terrible. Uh, the same reason I think that's terrible is the same reason that I think that these bills are just asking for a, a, a heap of trouble, a wealth of trouble. Because if folks are troubled enough to feel like they've got to have this, to feel like they've got to ha- to carry it, to feel like they've got to have, you know, to have to think that more means better. What is that? I mean, you're, it's going to be, houses are going to become fortresses. If they're not, more guns, as you know, also do not make people safer. They make people more unsafe. More guns equal more death. More guns equal more death. More guns equal more fear. It's a terrible, terrible set of dominoes that would mm-hmm. fall into effect if these bill if these laws pass. It only it, it is only going to polarize this nation even more than we are already polarized. Harvey Milk is known for saying you have to give them hope. Where do you turn for hope right now, Ken? Harvey is inspirational to me. And so, you know, I I do really depend on those those sort of quotes and that sort of mentorship as it as it uh, has impacted on me. I activists give me hope. Uh, the fact that we were able to turn the election around the way that we did when it did not look. We did this in the middle of a pandemic, okay? A pandemic. In a pandemic, we t- we had a sea change in the way the election looked like it was going to run. We had a sea change in getting the vote out. We had a sea change in accessibility for, pe- for the most disenfranchised voters. We had a sea change in people receiving information and actually acting upon it. That was mm. activism, pure and simple. If you know me, as and I know you, if people tell me no, guess what? That means that I'm going to figure out the way to get it done, especially if in my heart I know it's right and in my heart that people are going to benefit from it. If people are trying to hold us down, we are, you know, when they go low, we go high. And we also go sideways and we also go low. When they go low, we try to figure out a way around. Mm. You know, back to Harvey, 
They killed him. They killed him. There was a part of me that said, they're not going to do that to me. Harvey had said, you know, you got to give them hope. And I had hope that I could get out of there. And so we moved and, you know, eventually not that long after I found myself in New York where I've been ever since. I came to New York because I was afraid that I would be hurt more down where I came from. I was afraid that I'd be physically hurt. And then what really happened was, you know this, I got gay bashed pretty pretty brutally in New York City right mm-hmm. after I first moved here. They jumped up and down on my head and on my face and on my ribs, and they, I had a hematoma on my brain, and my jaw had to be wired shut for six weeks. And they tried to kill me, but they didn't. They tried right. to kill me, but they didn't. If they'd had a gun, there's no doubt in my mind that they would have. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that galvanized me that I had to really, you know, keep working so that that didn't happen to more people right about that same time AIDS was starting to kill my friends and make people sick and, you know, kill my lovers and kill, kill my first boyfriend. That one that I lived with in Charleston died of AIDS. Mm. Um, you know, I knew that I had a strength within me that as long as I was alive, as long as I had hope, that I could use the hope and the strength to combat the fear, not only for me, but for other people. And that came really right from folks like Harvey. Harvey is definitely at the core of my quote unquote activism. You know, I, I, I was sick of going to funerals and I was sick of crying in my room and I was sick of just feeling tired and sick of being sick and tired. So, you know, it all comes back to those th- those those things that you, we keep referencing. You got to give them hope. He sure did. I'm here to recruit you. I sure do. Now you mentioned I'm here to recruit you. What can we do to recruit people in the effort to end gun violence in America? There's two things that I can think of to tell them right now. First of all, we can do this. Second of all, it's the right thing to do. You've got a voice here. But nobody knows how you feel about this situation unless you tell them. Just as Harvey said, you have to come out. It's not just about sexual orientation. You have to come out to your family, to your friends, if they truly are your friends, in the workplace, at your school, to your shopkeeper, and say, gun violence is an epidemic. The way that we can win is to have more people involved. An army of lovers cannot fail, which is also something that I like to reference. And, you know, we can be a part of this army of lovers rather than, you know, to go against the people who are, you know, packing heat, to go against the people who are living in fear, to go against the people who are, you know, setting up, you know, fortressing themselves, in, you know, with, with firepower that they don't need, with military weapons that weren't designed for this. You know, there's a window of opportunity where we can actually make progress if people come out about this, if people act on their coming out about it, and if people galvanize and mobilize. Thanks, Ken. We love you. Uh, and thanks to Ty for being here. A reminder, if you make a contribution to WBAI in the amount of $100, a copy of the Harvey Milk Day Radio Gag Podcast will be yours. Visit 
give to WBAI.org or call the donation line at 212-209-2950. You are listening to Radio Gag on WBAI 99.5 FM. And now we'll hear from another activist, Tom Amiano, California and San Francisco elected official. Tom sat down with me and our Radio Gag team member, Libby Edwards, and he reads about Harvey from his memoir, Kiss My Gay Ass. <laughs> this is Sarah Lilly on the Radio Gag team. I'm here with Libby Edwards, and we are interviewing Tom Amiano. He is a longtime social justice advocate, an elected official, and a stand-up comedian. And he has written this great book that's called Kiss My Gay Ass. Yeah. That's what it's called. So, yeah. So, Tom, I'm just wondering, out of out of all your accomplishments, what do you want to tell our listeners about today? What what has had such a big impact out of the the many things that you've done? Well, I mean, a shorthand visibility. You know, vi- visibility in arenas that uh, ordinarily have been uh, uh, exclusive and still have a long way to go. And that is show business and comedy, but particularly elected um, as an elected official, you know, when there is no voice, um, my, not just myself, of course, this is all a team effort. And uh, especially around education as a teacher, uh, you know, that visibility and that push for uh, uh, for our own rights, but for young people. And uh, the other thing is you, Harvey Milk was very instructive about connecting the dots. Actually, he didn't just say connecting the dots. He said connecting the effing dots. He was very emphatic about it. And today we call that intersectionality. So if you look at his first campaigns, you will see outreach to the disabled community, uh, to tenants, to workers, to seniors, to the Chinese community, the Asian community. You know, and, you know, to me, that's the secret for today as well. Uh, we can do this, but we have to be united around it and recognize, you know, each other's disenfranchisement. And so we, we, we don't need to compete. Great. Now, you worked with Harvey on Briggs, right? It was almost um, surreal because here in San Francisco around 1975, we got some recognition of gay teachers. And Harvey was very helpful with that. There was establishment gays, air quotes, and they were more don't rock the boat, don't be visible, be nice. <laughs> See, we never espoused that. And I, that's what I admired so much about Harvey. And so when we, you know, accomplished that in San Francisco, we're feeling a little smug, I guess. And then all of a sudden, this, you know, kind of wacko guy in Sacramento, uh, coincidentally, I actually went there myself many years later in the assembly, came up with this idea to, to ban gay teachers and to also uh, anybody who knew. I mean, if you really looked at that, it was called Prop 6. But the uh, measure got a lot of attention. So even if you knew somebody who was gay was teaching, you could be fired. I mean, it was really broad and painful and ridiculous. And But we knew that there were a number of people who would respond to this because of the, uh, you know, always focusing on the the mist, the recruiting, the molestation. And so Harvey took on this issue uh, along with a woman named uh, Sally Gerhardt. 
and they were the spokespeople for the community. And the community, as usual, was fa- factionalized. Uh, they were saying, well, let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. You know, we finally just d- did it the way we wanted, but under the umbrella of the same goal. And I think that's what worked. So there was people who spent a lot of money on, uh, on ads and then and this. And then uh, then a lot of us well, we did the knocking on doors. Uh, you know, a lot of brave people. And there was Harvey and Sally carrying that, that flag for us. And we beat it back two to one in, uh, oh. in 1970. So not, not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. When you were saying that the bill would also affect people who, who knew that someone was gay. I mean, it's, it's like East Germany. Exactly. Uh, it's Nazi. Yeah, just that's horrifying. I didn't well, realize. you know, I don't, I don't think it's any secret that every group has its own problems. And in those days, particularly the, those teachers who were gay but deeply closeted, you know, and there was merit in that. I get that. We're very, very hostile towards uh, openly gay teachers and what we were trying to accomplish, that internal uh, self-hate that uh, many groups experience. But it is it is a complicated issue, any of these o- oppressions, especially when there's some legislation. You know, the Equality Act is... Um, coming up for consideration soon and the usual suspects are really lobbying heavily against it the catholic church particularly uh, i always it's always moves me when i he's probably an old man now but when that young uh african-american guy just said it you know if he, if it was me you know we knew exactly what he was talking about exactly and it's still true that's the horror of it all isn't it yeah well we want you to talk about the book and then you also are going to treat us and read. Sure. Well, you know, you live a long time. You see a lot of things. So through friends, we decided at least to put down my take on the 30, 40 years, you know, uh, being around and witnessing things like the damn white riots. We got it done. Uh, you know, I'm almost 80. So it's a memoir, you know, particular to San Francisco. And of course, some of the happenings that, you know, we... Uh, know about maybe, you know, nationally, the movement and, and all that. And um, it's it's done pretty well. And um, I understand uh, uh, we're going to uh, donate two to the station and you can do with them what you wish. Uh, it, the name of the book is uh, Kiss My Gay Ass. And it comes from an incident um, that I had with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll leave you hanging about that. You can <laughs> read it in the book. And if anyone is interested in purchasing, it's kissmygayass.com. Uh, so it's not. And I do have a chapter in the book called Out of the Crowd Comes Harvey Milk. Oh, this is chapter four. I moved to 16th and Castro Gay District in 1968. If you walk down Castro Street almost at any time then, you'd probably see Harvey Milk physically going about his business, either posting flyers or at work in his Castro camera store. Work in air quotes, because there wasn't a lot of work that happened. One of Harvey's flyers that I saw said, there are businesses in the Castro that you patronize and are homophobic. Then it listed several stores. One of them was called Mike Liquors and urged people to stop shopping there. And lo and behold, people did. 
and they lost the stores a lot of money. Well, guess what? In a week or two, those stores said, oh, we're hiring drag queens. Oh, they were our best friends. They totally reversed course. It was a pure business decision. It was a brilliant, straightforward strategy. What did it take? A little flyer. I really loved it. People underestimated what gay people were really thinking. They thought we'd all be docile and just say, take the money and discriminate me against me. Oh, well. Harvey came to my attention by doing that. But the most significant thing he did involved standing up to the police. I always had problems with cops and how they treated everyone. In those days, straight punks would come into the neighborhood, usually around 2 a.m. They would start to beat up on some poor gay guy. If you called the cops, the cops would come from Mission Station and they would hassle the gay guy. Then you would uh, try to stop them from hassle, hassling the guy. Harvey Milk stood up to that crap. In the Castro, the queens would pour out of the bars around two. Of course, it's a sidewalk culture and people just didn't dispense immediately. They stand around and talk. They do a little dance. They cruise for someone to go home with. There was a particular evening when all the bars emptied. Some straight guys pulled up, jumped out of their car, started to wail on a poor gay guy. Fortunately, there were some people there with alarm whistles. Uh, one of them, thanks to Hank Wilson, distributed these whistles uh, previously. Everyone started to whistle for help. They drew attention to the, uh, the incident. We all rushed over to where the gay guy was beaten. The straight punks were gone. And once the whistles went off, Zoom, they left. The cops showed up late. But when they did, their interaction with the uh, guy who was beaten up was not positive. The guys treated him like he had done something wrong by getting beaten up. They were snide to him and all that kind of stuff. Suddenly, out of the crowd comes the Jewish Calvary, Harvey Milk. He says to the cops, what are you doing here? Don't you understand this man needs help? What's happening? My heart leaped in my throat. I thought I really don't like cops and I always want to stand up to them, but I was afraid I'd get killed if I do that. Right then and there, there was an epiphany about who Harvey was and who he could be. There are a lot of queens who were very conservative, didn't like to rock the boat, even over incidents of gay violence. But it was when it was in your face, it was hard to equivocate about it. I mean, the cops were definitely out of line. When I saw Harvey stand up and call the cops out on their stuff in front of everyone, I thought, there's my hero. That is Tom Amiano reading from his book, Kiss My Gay Ass. And from out of the crowd comes Harvey Milk. Wow. So listeners, this book is available to you as a premium. We have two copies. If you want to call right now and you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag, Gays Against Guns, you will receive a copy of this book for a pledge of $25 or more. So do it now, people. Well, thank you, Tom Amiano. Thank you so much. Yeah, for all your good work, too. And Edwards, yeah. Wow, what a fighter. And I want to thank Libby Edwards for being on the production team and making Tom Amiano's uh, interview possible. Yeah, you can actually join Libby and me on Saturday, June 12th. 
Gag will mark five years since the Pulse nightclub massacre. To find out more, visit gaysagainstguns.net. And meet us over Zoom. We meet every other Thursday at 7 p.m. You are welcome. Please join us. And tune in tonight to Out FM right here on WBAI at 8 p.m. Their hour is going to feature a segment about the White Knight riots, actually, that broke out after the exoneration of Harvey's assassin. And thanks to the production team again. Next up, we are having Harvey Milk himself. He recorded this on November 18, 1977, just after he was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors on November 8th. And this audio comes to us courtesy of Milk colleagues Walter Kaplan and Dan Nicoletta, originally remastered from the cassette recording by Jenny Olson and Friends. Let's listen. It's Harvey Milk speaking from a camera store on the evening of Friday, November 18th. This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. Um... I've given some strong and long and considerable thought to this. Not just since the election. I've been thinking of this for some time prior to the election and certainly over the years. I fully realize that um, a person uh, who stands for what I stand for, an activist, gay activist, becomes the target or the potential target for somebody who is insecure, terrified, afraid, or very disturbed themselves. And knowing that uh, I could be assassinated at any moment, at any time, I feel it's important that some people know my thoughts. The first and most obvious and most concerned is that if I was to be shot, and killed. The mayor has the power, that's George Moscone, of appointing my successor on the Board of Supervisors. So I would like to have him know what my thoughts are. I stood for more than just a candidate. I, I have never considered myself a candidate. I have always considered myself part of a movement part of a candidacy. I considered the movement as a candidate. I think there's a delineation of those who use the movement and those who are part of the movement. And I think I was part of the gay movement. And I think that uh, I wish I had time to explain everything I did. Almost everything was done in the eyes of the gay movement. The other aspect of this tape is the obvious is what should happen if there is an assassination and that is cannot prevent it from some people from getting angry and frustrated and mad but I hope they would take that anger and frustration and madness instead of demonstrating or anything of that type I would hope they take it to positive and I would hope five, ten, a hundred thousand would rise. I'd love to see every gay doctor come out. I'd love to see every gay lawyer, every gay judge, every gay bureaucrat, every gay architect come out. Stand up. Let the world know that would do more to end prejudice overnight than anybody could have imagined. Urge them to do that.
urge them come out. It's only that way we start to achieve our rights. And that's all I ask. That's all. I ask for movement to continue, for movement to grow, because last week I got that phone call from Altoona, Pennsylvania. In my election, gave somebody else, one more person, hope. And after all, that's what it's about. It's not about personal gain, not about ego, not about power. It's about giving those young people out there in Altoona, Pennsylvania's hope. You gotta give them hope. Thanks, Harvey. Thanks to Dan Nicoletta for providing us with that clip. I was actually able to sit down with Dan and a friend of Gays Against Guns, Robert Krenquist, who were contemporaries of Harvey. Let's listen in. So, Dan and Robert, thank you so much for getting involved with this program today. We're honoring Harvey Milk with Radio Gag and bringing on a lot of our friends. Could you each tell me how his legacy has inspired and informed your own life? Hi, thanks for listening or watching. And um, uh, I'm a point person for um, Harvey Milk uh, information now because I knew the man and uh, worked in his camera store for three years. And it was one of the great experiences of my life. And he has kind of achieved a sort of... Uh, eternal uh, status, uh, partly due to his killing in 1978. I loved Harvey, and I loved his lover, Scott, who was my, my boss at the camera store. And um, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think of them and uh, what they would think about whatever my particular challenges may be. Paint a picture for us of a day in the life in the camera store. Well, it's a good question because I was actually hired to work in the camera store after being a customer and a good friend for a full year. Um, they asked me to come work for them because Harvey was entering his second supervisorial campaign. So this would be in the summer prior to August of 1975. August 1975 was my first day at the camera store. And so they asked me earlier in that summer if I would be interested. And of course I was <laughs> I was like, you know, Harvey kind of pulled me in off the street, walking by one day and said it, in this very serious voice, you know, I need to talk to you. And, I, and that was kind of unusual because he never was that serious usually. Um, you know, and he, he said, you know, we, we love you and we want you to come work for us. I'm going to be entering politics again and um, we need an extra pair of hands to help around in store because it's going to get crazy in here. And it did. Uh, so uh, I was very elated because I, I had only been in San Francisco a year and I had had all kinds of crazy jobs and I didn't really care because, you know, just being here in that first year, which is when I first met Robert, um, you just didn't care if you were a bike messenger or 
painting mushrooms on leather belts. You're just so happy to be in San Francisco. But then to be asked to work in Castro Camera, which was already, you know, coming together as a kind of community hub on many, many levels, it was, you know, a gift from the gods, so to speak. And I didn't know film prices yet, so I was useless. I was kind of useless. And, and Harvey just handed me like three rolls of, you know, slide film and said, here, your job today is to go photograph the street fair. And I was super, and this was my political initiation. I mean, I was super clueless before that. And, and, but my registration form has Harvey's signature on it because at that point, the registrar did sign the documents. So, but it really truly was my initiation into political identity. And, um, and then there were some creative worlds that both Robert and I cohabitated. You know, for a 19 and a half year old, it was as good as it gets. Robert, can you paint a picture for us of how Harvey's life and legacy has inspired your own work? Yeah. Uh, and thank you, Josh, for, for having Dan and me participate. Yeah, I moved to Northern California in 1966 to go to college. Started hanging out up in, in the city and was part of the whole counterculture, flower child, uh, Vietnam, anti-Vietnam war. So it was a, it was a, it was a cultural mix of anti-violence activism, anti-war activism, and gay liberate, gay women's liberation activism and gay liberation activism and, and uh, I ended up on Castro Street, where Dan was in, at the same time. And the camera shop was was the real on-the-grounds political organizing. I had known Harvey as a long-haired freak, like the rest of us. And um, he'd just come from his Tom O'Horgan days in New York. And suddenly he appeared in a suit and tie with short hair, and he said, uh, he said, I may look like I'm no longer one of you, but this is a disguise. This is a, I'm, this is a performance. I have cut my hair and I'm wearing this suit and tie as a performance for us to gain power within the system. And I think that that was the big lesson that, that I really got from Harvey was that by simply changing your appearance, you were not betraying your, those fundamental values of nonviolence, uh, women's liberation, gay liberation, uh, intersectionality, as it's called, called today. Dan mentioned a number of times he used the word love, and that's really the word that I feel with, with Harvey, too, was that he just really exuded love. Lead with the power, power of love. Well, Dan, Robert, thank you so much for your time. I'm left feeling hopeful from our conversation. Robert, your mention of leading with light and hope has inspired me. Dan, you as well. I really appreciate all the insights you gave into your work at the camera store. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Josh. Thanks again to Dan and Robert. We'll bring you more of our conversation actually on a future Radio Gag show. We are Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show on WBAI 99.5 FM. Support us. Pledge yes. for premiums. Make a donation at 212-209-2950 or by visiting give numeral to WBAI.org. We are here every Tuesday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. 
bringing you the latest in the gun violence prevention movement. Now, we're making connections to Australia with Navo Zeeson, author of The Pronoun Lowdown. They've given us copies of their book that we will send you when you contribute to WBAI for $25 or more. And here is Navo Zeeson in their own words. Good afternoon, listeners. We're here with Navo Zeeson. And we are talking about their wonderful new book that's called The Pronoun Lowdown. So, Navo, can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book and give us some context for it? Oh, yeah. So I think, um, you know, a big reason why I wrote this book is exactly that context. I think that there is, you know, a real upsurge in the awareness around pronouns at the moment and a lot more conversation around trans identity, which is really beautiful. And I hold a lot of gratitude in my heart for that, but it's also not a new conversation and it's not a new thing. And so I really wanted to bring some of our attentions back to the historical context in which Trans identity have all, has always existed in the world, um, on the land that I'm on, the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nations. And, you know, I pay my respects to the elders, past, present and emerging in the 80,000 plus years of history that has existed on this country. And gender diversity has existed for all of that time as well, you know. So I think it's really important to counter this sort of rumour of trans identity being a left-wing fad and recontextualize where we actually are within history and within humanity's timeline and that trans people have always existed, that gender diversity has always been present, uh, and also talk about how some languages are evolving with gender-neutral um, use and especially gendered languages. I wanted to explore that. I wanted to explore our trailblazers and pioneers. I wanted to tell a little bit of my story. Uh, and mostly I wanted to stop getting misgendered. Because <laughs> I mean, I wrote a book about my life and continued getting misgendered after that. So I thought at least if I write a book about pronouns, hopefully that will help. And yet it seems evident even post this book that I will continue to get misgendered even in gigs where they have booked me specifically specifically to speak about my gender, unfortunately. <laughs> wow. I found this book so useful. I'm a teacher. You know, I grew up in a segregated white community. As, as I've grown and as I've lived, I've been able to see all of these um, boxes and labels and structures of patriarchy and how they have hidden from me this diversity. And yet I'm also aware, maybe for the first time, of how much that I don't know. Thank you so much for expressing that, Sarah, and for your own vulnerability and being truthful with that process, because I think that that is a really important key step in this revolution is understanding some of our own shortcomings or our own um, lack of awareness of certain things. And I think the way you spoke to that was also really beautiful because it's not a mistake and it's not an accident that these truths have been hidden from us. They have been very much on the agenda of those in power to keep them hidden from us. And, you know, the way that you speak about the role of the patriarchy, I think, is so crucial because when it comes to feminist discourse and when it comes to the liberation of, of women, for example, you know, that liberation comes very much hand in hand with trans people. When we liberate trans people, everyone else 
is liberated too, you know, because we are all oppressed and caged by the shackles of gender expectations and stereotypes. I've never actually met anyone who was like, really, I find these um, rigid gender binaries really uh, empowering and liberating for me. You know, I've never met a man who has been told to man up or that he's just such a wuss or he shouldn't have any emotions and that that has been an empowering and brilliant experience for him, you know, and I've never met a woman who has told me that when she's accused of being on her period that she feels seen and heard and understood because she is always on her period and it informs her perspectives on everything. You know, I don't, I don't hear those things. And I think that there is a deep grief in our society from these processes of genderings that we have undergone, that we have had to really shave down parts of ourselves in order to fix into these really limiting boxes. And I just don't believe you can put 7.8 approximately billion people into two categories. I mean, that seems ridiculous. Even if you are a cisgender woman or a cisgender man, the way that you embody your womanhood or your manhood, your expression, the way that you dress, the places that you feel most comfortable in, your hobbies, your interests, your expression is all so vastly different from every other person that you might interact with. So I really believe that no one is liberated by these boxes and that we can find ways to bring all uh, ships to the shore with this rising tide of revolution. Beautiful. You remind me of Harvey's words, I am all of us. What can you say about Harvey Milk and Harvey Milk Day? Was he was he brought forward to use a figure in terms of uh, learning about uh, gay history? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, he was somewhat. I feel a lot of grief, I think, of how little I know about queer history and how much I would like to learn more. And, you know, I speak a lot on panels and when I give talks about um, the sort of activist life cycle and how it isn't the instant gratification that we get from social media, but rather a long game, a generational game, you know, and that what is important is our conservation and sustainability of our own self-care and community care throughout that process, because we may never see the world that we envision and that we fight for in our own lifetimes. And I think that Harvey Milk is such an important example of that, that the work that he did, while he may not have seen the ramifications or the, or the output of that, um, has now bared the fruit that I get to feast on every day of my life. Now, Gays Against Guns, we are a gun violence prevention organization. We do honor trans people who have been killed by gun violence. Could you say a word about the tragic impact of gun violence on the community and give us your perspective as an Australian? Absolutely. I mean, to me, it is entirely unfathomable how many trans people we have lost, not just to murder uh, over the last few years. I mean, I know that in 2020, there were 350 trans people who were murdered, but also to suicide because every trans suicide is a trans murder. You know, it, that's what I believe. I believe that we have not been provided with the infrastructure and the community and the safety to care for ourselves in that as well. And I guess, you know, what's also really important is when we speak about this is I'm so hyper aware of my privilege 
not just as an Australian person who lives somewhere where gun violence is not a daily reality for me and not something that my community deals with day to day um, in that kind of way, but also my proximity to whiteness and how much that also influences and impacts how at risk I am, you know, because while Australian society in general may be safe from gun violence and trans and gender diverse people, Aboriginal people in custody are not. And there are black deaths occurring in custody at despicable rates. I mean, the highest that they have ever been, there is an ongoing genocide and colonization going on in this country. I mean, people are supposedly um, safe within prisons or at least in the custody of, of police officers. And I mean, I don't believe that as someone who's very anti um prison industrial complexes. But I think, you know, if the only places where guns exist in Australia are very much sort of within prisons and in the hands of cops, and that's still resulting in the deaths of our people, what does that mean? And what does that look like? So I'm very conscious of the ways that it does impact people in, a, in so-called Australia, but I'm also very conscious of the privileges that I embody by being a settler on this country, by being um, white and by also living in Australia and that this isn't something that I am threatened with or that I am hyper aware of all the time. And I so wish that freedom and that reality for everyone in the US at some point too. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nifo Season, for being here today and for talking with us about your beautiful book, The Pronoun Lowdown. We're going to give our listeners an opportunity to get a copy of the book as a premium a little bit later in the show when they become members of WBAI. And I really, really appreciate you being here today. Um, are there any last words you'd like to say? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and what a, an incredible advanced technological world we live in that we can have these conversations across the oceans. And I so hope that this is the beginning of conversations that I can have with people um, on Turtle Island and around the world. And, you know, please feel free to get in touch on the socials. I'm Nevozison everywhere, my website, Instagram, Facebook, and I'm really keen to hear from people. If you have questions or reflections or feedback, I'm open to learning further and, and having more of these conversations. And I also do a lot of uh, educational work and workshops as my full-time job. So I'm always happy to do Zoom sessions across the shores. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for having me and for listening in. And I hope you really enjoy the book. Thank you. Wow. Thanks so much to Niveau for joining us and sharing their work. Get the pronoun lowdown by calling 212-209-2950 or going to give to WBAI.org and pledging $25 or more in the name of Radio Gag. Our next guest, I'm so excited to introduce with Sarah. As a young man, he was mentored by Harvey Milk, his work as a human rights activist, has made a worldwide impact. He's the one and only Cleve Jones. Cleve sat down with Josh and me to share personal stories about Harvey and how his important work continues today. Here's part one of our interview. 
We're speaking here with Cleve Jones, human rights activist. Cleve, you've already had such an impact on our lives and on me personally through the AIDS quilt, the Names Project. What do you say has had an, an impact, maybe what you're proudest of, or what do you really value about the work that you've done? Well, thank you. Um, that's an extremely kind question, and I, I do appreciate it. And of course, uh, the impact of the quilt was extraordinary. And even before it started, when I was just thinking about it and trying to convince people that it could work and be useful, I just had this, I guess, a little video running in my head of families of all types gathering on uh, living room floors and places of worship, community centers to share stories about their loved ones while working with their hands to create art. And uh, it's extraordinary now for me to think, you know, how many... Uh, tens of thousands of people participated in that process. How many uh, millions of people viewed displays of the quilt in person and how many hundreds of millions received its message. So clearly, you know, that was something amazing. Um, I'm 66 now, and I think that probably what I'm most proud of is simply that I'm still doing this, that I've endured I've made many mistakes and fallen flat on my face more times than I can count, but I keep going and I'm proud that I've kept going and I'm still doing it. Thank you. It's fantastic. You, you got your start when you were pretty young yourself. Could you tell me about uh, those, those days in San Francisco when you yourself were younger and just getting started uh, working in social justice? When I was a child, uh, I grew up mostly in a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then we moved to Phoenix, Arizona when I started high school in 1968, which is a year, of course, of, of uh, great chaos in the United States. And my parents had been early <clears throat> supporters of the movement and the war in Vietnam. They'd supported Dr. King. So I grew up in a, in a family that honored the civil rights leaders of that time, wanted to end the war. Uh, it was my mother was an early feminist. We, uh, you know, circulated petitions for the Equal Rights Amendment. <clears throat> so I grew up with the uh, early with an understanding that there was a broad and deep global movement for peace and justice. Uh, and then, you know, I was harboring this terrible secret about who I was. It wasn't really a secret though, because I was. Um, bullied constantly, you know, being called a sissy and uh, treated rather badly by the other kids in the school um, and many adults. So I began to plan my exit. And, you know, I'm, I'm I, I, undeniably, we've made enormous progress. But I have no doubt that within just a short distance of where I'm sitting right now and where you are sitting, there is some child, some adolescent who... Uh, knows that they are queer or trans and doesn't believe that they will ever be happy or ever be loved, and they are getting ready to take their own lives. Um, you know, I was one of those kids, and I was stealing uh, pills from my my parents. Both had had surgeries, so there was a lot. There was a lot, a lot of strong medication in the in the bathroom medicine cabinet, and I was stealing them one by one and hiding them in a stash under the 
carpet in a corner of my bedroom because I knew that at some point soon I would be discovered. And the only thing to do then would be to kill myself. Um, and then uh, at the end of 1971, I was hiding out in the school library, avoiding the bullies in gym class. And I read uh, the, I picked up the year in review uh, issue of Life magazine, year in review 1971. And right on the cover, along with all the other issues that they were going to examine in that special edition, it said gay liberation. And it blew my mind. Wow. Uh, I, I opened it up, and the first thing I see was a headline that said homosexuals in revolt. It showed uh, members of uh, Gay Activist Alliance in Greenwich Village marching through the street with their fists in the air. They were hot. And I was... <laughs> Uh, you know, my mind was blown because in one moment, boom, I understood that I was not alone, that there were other people just like me, uh, and that there was a community for people like us, and that there was a movement that was part of the larger movement that my family and I had already uh, belonged to. So I joined the movement uh, when I was still in high school back in Phoenix, Arizona, some of those stories in Life magazine were about San Francisco. And, of course, this was long before the Internet, so it took a while for me to very carefully and secretively research, uh, find out whatever I could. Back then, The Advocate was really the only publication that linked us. And if a copy of The Advocate made it to Phoenix, Arizona, it would be passed around from hand to hand until it disintegrated. And I joined a little group called GLAD, Gay Liberation Arizona Desert. Mm. And then um, I, a bunch of us drove up to San Francisco for Pride and also a Quaker yearly meeting, Pacific yearly meeting. I was very involved in the Society of Friends, partly, uh, I met them partly through uh, anti-war work, but was very involved with it. And so that summer after I graduated from high school, I came out on a trip to San Francisco and just fell in love with the city and, you know, it was still, uh, it was, it was just so brand new. The whole idea right. of us rising up, uh, finding each other, and the idea of gay people being happy was just so unusual and, uh, let alone militant and ready to fight. And, mm -hmm. So for me, even though I was poor and on the street, you know, when I first got to San Francisco, I was homeless for quite a while and had to do all of the, you know, grimy things one has to do in those situations to survive. But I just thought this was the grandest adventure I could possibly imagine. How did you first link up with uh, Harvey? Was it during that time? when you had first gotten there? So um, I mentioned my involvement with the Quakers and that f during that first visit to San Francisco, I attended a large gathering of friends. It was held in the East Bay. <clears throat> and I saw a notice on the bulletin board that said that gay and lesbian friends were going to be meeting at a specific time. And they, there was a room number. Um, I uh, went through an enormous amount of internal angst uh, to get up the courage to go. 
that meeting had been organized by two gay Quakers named Gary Miller and Ron Bentley. Gary Miller's uh, still alive, actually still active, particularly in education issues. Um, and they had invited Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon to come and speak to the gathering. Del and Phyllis were the first lesbian activists I ever met. So, you know, you, you can hope, imagine the, the <laughs> impact uh, that they had on this 17 year old long haired boy from Phoenix. And, Dell and Phyllis were active in a, one of the earliest groups here in the Bay Area called Council on Religion and the Homosexual, which had enlisted liberal, what we would now call today progressive clergy, mostly from the anti-war and civil rights movement, uh, to support us in our efforts to stop the police abuse, stop the harassment and the beatings and the arrests, which were so common then. So I got to meet Dell and Phyllis, and then I went back to... Uh, Phoenix to try to go to school. I gave it a semester and couldn't stand it. I couldn't concentrate. I just wanted to go back to San Francisco. And then I moved back, but I already had these rather remarkable connections to some of the greatest pioneers our, our movement has ever produced. Another one was Jim Foster, who has uh, regrettably been, I think, largely forgotten, but he was the first out gay person to ever address a uh, national political convention. He spoke at the Democratic National Convention in 1972. I think it was at three in the morning, but <laughs> it, and this was about the same time that Harvey was moving to San Francisco from New York. I just love Cleve so much. Wasn't it great to sit down with them, Sarah? Yeah, so inspiring. And wait till you hear part two. Uh, Cleve is connecting with the mission of Gays Against Guns, and he gives his personal account of the day Milk and Moscone were assassinated. Yeah, let's listen in. Gays Against Guns was founded in the days and weeks after the Pulse Massacre. And one thing that we knew at that time that we wanted to do was not take the easy way out, was to in your words, hit the streets when you were talking about those early days in your own activism. Hitting the pavement, literally putting our bodies on the line figuratively and literally by doing die-ins during Heritage of Pride's march. What are some of the ways that you think we can recruit members to our cause? First of all, movements must grow. The minute your movement stops growing, stops bringing in new blood and new energy and new ideas, you're in trouble. For me, a big crucial first step is the language we use. And I think that so many of us, especially on the queer left, use a language and a vocabulary that is inaccessible and elitist and arrogant. And people don't get it. They just can't hear what you're saying because you're using, it's like, it's mind numbing and it steps on, it squashes the message. So I think language is something I've always really paid attention to. And, and then communicating your message without browbeating, without guilt tripping, without finger wagging, but focusing clearly on the issue in language that everyone can understand. Another thing that um, I think is important is to show universality. Our people have a particular interest in ending gun violence. 
But as we do that, we don't want to claim some exclusivity. We want to be part of like supporting all, as you guys have done, supporting all of the students who are, have said, you know, I grew up going to high school afraid I was going to get shot. Mm-hmm. You find common ground. This, I learned this from Harvey. You, you, he was so adept at reaching out to all different kinds of people. He could talk to the firefighters at the union hall. He could talk to homeless people pushing shopping carts. He could talk to rich white ladies on Knob Hill and fur coats. He could talk to anybody you could imagine and somehow find some kind of common ground and then begin that conversation. But for our community, I think when people think about gun violence, they think about things like the the horror at, at Pulse and the ongoing violence, uh, particularly right now, there's a whole, obviously a, a real wave of violence against trans women of color. And But we also need to remember that our kids are still killing themselves. And the use of firearms in suicide is, it's the most effective use. I imagine you and many of your listeners know people who have survived suicide attempts. I regret to say that I know quite a few people who have attempted to take their life. One happens to be a very brilliant young man that I just met quite recently, and he attempted it uh, with a razor blade Mm. and changed his mind. You can't change your mind if you've just pulled the trigger. I, I regret how many people I know who took their lives with firearms. It's it's a horrible, horrible thing, and you can't take it back. You can't have second thoughts. And what you leave for your survivors is, you know, a lifetime of nightmares. So I think that we have a particular interest in fighting gun violence and drawing out the, the the commonality of the experiences of so many different kinds of people in so many different kinds of communities across the country who are affected by this issue like no other country in the world. That's exactly right. Sarah. Okay, let's go back a second. I just want to tell you that I lived in uh, San Francisco in 1978. We're almost the same oh. age. Oh, wow. I was part of the community there, so excited to be living on Hate Street and be able to walk to the Castro and love that it was a walking city. And then uh, November came and and we got the news about Jonestown. And then a couple weeks later, we got the news about our mayor and Harvey Milk being assassinated. And I remember being on the bus down Market Street and Market Street was just deserted and just being able to feel the city grieving. Um, What was it like for you at that time? You know, we had also in that month won the fight against the Briggs Initiative. So November began with the very first statewide electoral victory of our movement. It had never happened before, and it would not happen again for 30 years. So I, as one of the, you know, foot soldiers, was elated and I was so proud of Harvey and um, I was so fortunate, you know, because at that point my father and I hadn't really reconciled. And so Harvey was kind of that dad for me and uh, my mentor. And 
he bribed me with an internship uh, to go back to school. So I'd enrolled in the poli-sci department at San Francisco State and was earning credit by working for him, which was good because I hate school. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, it was approaching Thanksgiving, so his paid aides, uh, his legislative assistants, uh, Dick Pavich and Ann Cronenberg, were out of town visiting their families for the Thanksgiving holiday. And I got in City Hall early on the morning of November 27th just to show him how useful I could be. And uh, as it happened, I left a file in my apartment that he needed, and he was annoyed with me and sent me back to get it. And he could tell that I was upset with myself. He, and uh, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really on edge. There's all this stuff going on, and uh, I'm sorry. Go get the file, have some lunch, and come back, and we'll, we'll you know, we'll work together this afternoon. So <clears throat> I went back to Castro Street and got the file and was walking down the street. There was a picket line at one of the restaurants, the old Patio Cafe, if you remember that, and the workers there were unionizing, and the union that I now work for today, Unite Here, was organizing the workers. So there was a picket line. I did a few rounds on the picket line, and then the 24 Divisadero bus pulled up at the bus stop, and a woman yelled out the window at me, hey, Cleve, uh, they shot the mayor. And uh, I just, you know, that was sort of incomprehensible. I adored George Moscone. He was so handsome and charismatic and progressive. Uh, uh, so I just uh, jumped in a taxi and I got down to City Hall on, and on the Van Ness Street side, the western entrance. And I saw all the police rushing towards the eastern entrance, so the Polk Street side, where the mayor's office is. And I went looking for Harvey and ran up the, that grand staircase. And I had a key to the private hallway at the time that ran parallel to the public hallway and the supervisor's offices were there. And I just ran in and was yelling, Harvey, where are you? And as I entered the hallway, I see Diane Feinstein running the other way and she had uh, blood on her sleeve. And then I turned the corner and I saw Harvey's feet sticking out into the hallway. And I knew it was him because I recognized the shoes. And um, I came around, looked in the door and saw him. I, I had never seen a dead person before. I'd certainly never seen close up what bullets do. Uh, to. It was just, it was horrendous. Uh, just horrendous and I remember freezing and just being unable to move or speak just the, the horror of it was so overwhelming and then I thought well it's all over now you know it's all over and we're done and we weren't allowed to leave we had to sit in his office he was shot in Dan White's office across the hallway and we had to sit in there while they bundled up the bodies and got them out. And we found the tape that Harvey had left when he predicted his assassination. And I knew he'd made the tape and I used to make fun of him. Mm. I said, Harvey, you're not important enough to get shot. No, you're not JFK. You're not Dr. King. You're not Malcolm X. Nobody's going to shoot you. Uh, but I just kept thinking it's just all over. And I felt very, um, I know it sounds selfish, but I just felt so personally defeated. Uh, 
this guy uh, saw something in me. He was probably the first adult to tell me I had value just as I was. And I didn't need to change. And I didn't need to be this or that. I could just be me and be useful. And I just thought, oh, it's all over. It's just all over. And then the sun went down. And people began to gather on Castro Street, and we were gay and straight and young and old and black and brown and white and immigrant and native-born, and we lit those candles. And uh, I imagine many people hearing this story remember it or have seen the footage. Um, and when we got to the Civic Center and filled that plaza with all the lights of our candles, I realized I was wrong, that it wasn't over. It was just beginning. Thank you, Cleve. Thank you, listeners. If you like what you heard, be part of our movement. Be a BAI dub buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Go to give2wbai.org for your choice. The Pronoun Lowdown by Navozizen or Kiss My Gay Ass by Tom Amiano. That's a $25 pledge for $100 or more. The Harvey Milk Day Radio Gag Podcast. Give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 because we're back next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. That's right. And listen to Radio Gag on WBAI.